We have been told how cows are causing the climate to change by emitting greenhouse gases. Now we are being told to replace the beef we eat with environmentally friendly, manufactured meat. And so we ask again: Should beef be banned? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host Michael Olson. And now get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. You are tuned into the 1296th edition of the Food Chain Radio Show. Or hey, perhaps you're among our friends way down there in Puerto Madryn who are tuned into the Food Chain Podcast at MetroFarm.com. Well, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Folks, America's beef industry has many enemies and few friends. The enemies of the beef camp include the environmentalists who claim that the cow destroys the earth by trampling it beneath its hooves and forces the climate to change by emitting greenhouse gases. The camp also includes nutritionists who claim that eating the saturated fat of beef makes people fat and sick, and vegans and vegetarians and animal rights activists who believe all farm animals should be treated like the family pet or released to run free in nature. Well, the enemies of beef camp also now includes the industrialists who offer up meat-like substitutes for beef made with patented chemicals that cannot be manufactured without their getting a sufficient royalty. The Friends of Beef Camp, on the other hand, includes those who earn a living raising the animals and those who process the animals for sale to the public. There are not many of them that the Friends of Beef have been losing so much ground to the enemies of beef leads us to ask, once again, should beef be banned? Here to help fight for the cow, we have Nicolette Hahn Neiman, who is the author of Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Nicolette, welcome back to the food chain. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you know, when we last talked, which was like 299 editions of the Food Chain Radio Show ago, <laughs> you, you're, you had a different book about defending beef because the subtitle of that book was The Case for Sustained Meat Production. And now your revised edition, the subtitle is The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Beef. So what was it that led you to make this transition, as it were, in purpose for your defense of beef? Well, gosh, there were so many things I wanted to do in the, in the new version of the book that, you know, with the passage of time, the original book is about seven years ago. And when I wrote that book, I felt it was super timely, but it turned out it was a few years earlier than, you know, there were a lot of people read it and, and talked about it. I'm happy for that. But uh, it didn't, it didn't affect the public conversation as much as I wanted it to, because people weren't quite ready to debate beef yet at that time. And it turns out the issue has become sort of more topical in the last seven years. And, you know, as you said in your introduction, there's kind of this more and more organized argument against beef. And ironically, a lot of the people that are sort of advancing 
the arguments that are kind of being used against meat are actually the meat industry itself, <laughs> because they are now diversifying they're, you know, these large industrial uh, food companies, including a lot of meat companies like Tyson, are putting significant investment into what they're calling alternative meats. And, w- and, and which so, I call, and which I call fake meat. Yeah, and what I call processed food. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, well, so yeah. so there is a very interesting dichotomy there, um, in in which Nicolette Hahn Neiman is actually fighting against the industry that she's trying to defend, but yet yep. for people who don't know you, they might not know that for 30 years you were a vegetarian. And, right. and furthermore, that you were a environmental lawyer working for Bobby Kennedy at the Waterkeepers Alliance against in this industrial uh, form of agriculture. So how on earth did a vegetarian attorney become a cattlewoman? Yeah, well, the simple answer is I married into the profession. <laughs> but there's a lot more to it than that, because I did, you know, I, I was a biology major in college. I was always interested in environmental issues. I had actually been involved as a child in, you know, child environmental groups. And I spent a lot of time outside, you know, at, um, as, as a lot of kids did in the 70s and 80s. And um, you know, we weren't glued to our screens in those days. <laughs> and um, and my parents were very interested in the natural world. And um, I spent a lot of time walking out in the woods with my father, especially. And I just had this whole kind of interest in the natural world and understanding how it works and what is, the you know, the human's role in it. And um, as an adult, I wanted to get involved in environmental causes. And I went to, um, went to law school and became a lawyer. And at first I was a prosecutor attorney and I worked then for a law firm and then I heard a speech by Bobby Kennedy Jr. actually in my hometown Kalamazoo Michigan and he was talking about how he had become a lawyer that used his law degree to fight on behalf of the environment and I didn't really know you know how one does that until I heard him speak and then I ended up um, working for the National Wildlife Federation for a while after I heard that speech and then from there, I happened to meet Bobby Kennedy directly, and he encouraged me to apply for a position at Waterkeeper Alliance, which was the group that he was in charge of in New York. And I did apply, and I was hired to be their senior attorney. When I got there, he asked me, they focused on um, water quality especially and fighting against water pollution. But he asked me to focus in particular on the meat industry because what he was seeing all around the United States and certain areas especially, were large, concentrated, kind of industrial-style meat operations. Cathos. Yeah, and and he was really seeing it, um, especially in the hog industry and in the poultry industry, and he wanted me to use the environmental laws to fight against the pollution from those operations. And so that was what I did for two years, and I became kind of a specialist in meat industry pollution. But during those two years, I also had the pleasure of visiting some really good farms where they had animals uh, that were basically out on grass, were being moved around the farm and, you know, in a good kind of rotational pattern with crops and, you know, livestock alternating. And these were 
um, very different places from these industrial operations. So and increasingly, it's, it's I started almost, to feel like that, that was the right kind of meat, you know, that I need to advocate for. So there's almost two kinds of, of animal agriculture here. And it seems to yeah. me like the enemies of beef and uh, of animal agriculture have learned how to successfully use its worst elements such as depicted by those confined uh, concentrated animal feeding operations and use them against the entire business or the industry. Yeah. So look at this conf concentrated animal feeding operation. It, it's representative of the beef, beef industry. Therefore, we must get rid of all the beef. Yeah. And actually, the irony about that is having you know spent two years focusing on these concentrated kind of industrial style operations. And, and I and I visited a lot of them. And um, so I really saw it firsthand. And it was at that time that I first started thinking, really, the beef situation was really different. And it was ironic to me that it was getting the most negative attention because the kind of like the worst situation for beef cattle, you know, which is, I would say, kind of a large feedlot, they're still outside. They're not as tightly concentrated. And they spent the earlier part of their lives on rangeland or pasture. You know, so they had they had a portion of their lives where they were grazing, they were exercising, they were doing all the things that animals really should be doing. And when you look at the concentrated pork and poultry operations, those are animals that spend their entire lives in those buildings, extremely, you know, crowded, densely um, populated and very polluting kinds of places. So, so that's when the idea started coming, you know, the seed of the idea that somebody needed to defend beef was already planted in my head during those years. But then I married Bill Nyman, who's the founder of the Nyman Ranch Network, and I became, you know, a member of a family that was doing, you know, raising cattle. Still a and vegetarian, was, though. Still a vegetarian for a long time. In fact, I've been living on our ranch now for 18 years, and I just started eating meat um, two years ago, so very recently. And that was because, you know, like a lot of people, I kind of felt like, well, you know, I don't have to eat animals. It's something that you can choose to do. I never felt it was unethical to do it, but I felt that for myself personally, I was more comfortable not eating animals. And then the more time I've lived here and we have two young sons and I cook, you know, I was cooking meat for them every day. And I started feeling like, actually, I should be eating this meat because I believe it's really wholesome and nutritious. And as I passed the age of 50, I wanted to make sure I was getting, you know, the best possible nutrition. And it was really clear to me that beef would be, you know, all meat, but really beef in particular, because we raise it ourselves, would be a really good addition to my diet. And th and that's when I decided to do it. Mm -hmm. You make mention of Elliot Coleman in, in your yeah. book. And uh, yeah. who was a vegetarian as well. Right. And uh, came to the conclusion that beef was the way to get the nutrition off the land that otherwise would not be available. Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of the, the idea behind my book, Defending Beef, is not just that. Sometimes I've had a lot of conversations with environmental groups and people who work for them over the years because that's kind of the community you know that I came from as well. And one thing I learned is that people were always talking about sort of mitigating the harms from, you know, various forms of agricultural production, including beef. And like, well, we know it's bad for the environment, but we can try to mitigate the harms. 
And what I started realizing, you know, the more I learned, the more I studied, the more I saw, was that when animals, grazing animals especially, are raised well, you actually have a net environmental benefit from it. So mitigation is not even the right conversation. It's really about how do you raise cattle? And the thing you just mentioned from Elliot Coleman is a perfect example. They're actually able to eat inedible vegetation off of virtually any kind of land, vegetation that humans could never directly eat, but they can convert that to meat and milk. And it's a way that you sort of... um, fill a hole in nature that would have been there, you know, it would have been um, filled by grazing herbivores that once covered much of, you know, the world, including North America. And so you're taking, you're you're making your um, agricultural operation more like an ecosystem. And what grazing animals do, as, as you know, Elliot Coleman quote you just mentioned says, is it takes a a lot of the um, nutrients that can enter the food system are from the soils and from the rocks and grazing animals can actually get some of that into their system through their grazing, and then that gets into the food. We can't get, you know, that from that vegetation, that cellulosic vegetation. And um, the grazing animals can do that for us. And they also just have, I mean, there's, I go through it in a lot of detail in the book, but they have many positive ecosystem effects when they're uh, managed the right mm-hmm. way. We just have to do that. That's, that's why I think for me it's all about it's not the cow, it's the how. So we have to focus on the how, you know, the whole world has to improve what it's doing in that regard. But and getting the rid inter- of the cow well, is gonna, absolutely the wrong thing. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to pick that up. How do we do this? And should <laughs> we do this? Should we not just get rid of the cow? After all, we can make the meat now in big vats in a, in a laboratory, or we can fake it by putting some weeds together and gluing them together with uh, some very potent chemicals that are all patented by very rich people who want us to stop eating beef and start eating their patented fake meat right back. And now, back to What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. With Nicolet Hahn Neiman in defense of beef and... um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the whole business of concentrated animal feeding operations. And the more I think about them, the more I realize that we've come to treat animals like we're treating ourselves. And if you look at any big city, San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York City or Chicago, are they not concentrated animal feeding operations, Nicolette? Well, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't exactly made that connection in my mind, but I have been thinking, you know, during the course of the COVID pandemic, I've been thinking a lot about this whole question of disease transmission in urban environments. You know, you're just, I I happen to be in New York City right as the pandemic was hitting the United States in early March. And I was going around the city everywhere I was, whether I was on the subway or, you know, in a restaurant or in a store or anywhere. And I felt like, wow, it's impossible to really prevent sort of dramatic transmission of, a, of an illness in, an, in a physical environment like this. And that's exactly what the CAFO is like, too. Yeah. You have this very, very crowded environment, and so disease 
uh, transmission is very easy. And there's really good research from Johns Hopkins and, and other um, universities around the world showing that diseases in these really concentrated animal operations um, not just transmit quickly, but they morph really quickly. So there's really rapid evolution of more virulent strains in these environments. And, and that's why when you just think about, to me, sort of like what is a healthy food system like, um, that concentration element is something that just is, is never going never gonna to work. It's never going to be a healthy way to produce food. Not for us or not for our animals. Right, exactly. So, so there we are. So one of the principal uh, complaints about animal agriculture, and especially beef, is that um, it's causing the climate to change. True or false? Right. Right. I mean, there's always an element of truth, right? And mm -hmm. then <laughs> that element, you know, that little seed of truth gets kind of overblown and gets misunderstood and gets exaggerated by people who want to, you know, you, you gave a nice list at the beginning of the people that are against beef. And in particular, I've been intrigued by, um, I've actually uncovered in my research some very pivotal moments where the animal rights movement deliberately decided to begin focusing on climate change in its advocacy. There had been decades of meat is murder as a message, and that had had only a limited resonance. You know, there was still a very stable percentage of the population only being vegetarian, and that wasn't that number wasn't really growing. But starting, you know, a couple decades ago, there was a deliberate decision to sort of begin using environmental issues and particularly climate change as an argument to get away from meat. Now, can you and, can you pinpoint that time? That can you pin who did it? Well, the, one of the people who really. Um, encouraged this idea was Jeremy Rifkin, who wrote, you know, who's a journalist and who's kind of a generalist and has written a lot of different books about a lot of different topics. But he wrote the book Beyond Beef. He's a his wife is a vegan. I don't know if he is now. He wasn't originally at the time that he wrote the book. But they were, you know, he was obviously being influenced by her interest in animal rights and and against meat. Mm -hmm. And so, so we so I, we start I, we start with the whole notion of animal rights and all animals. Yeah should be treated like our pets or set free. Yeah, and the idea is to just basically, um, what, what was really interesting about Jeremy Rifkin's book is that he pinned a kind of, I mean, I, I was reading it right as I was working, you know, as an environmental lawyer on these issues. So I was really, you know, I knew the science, I knew the data. And he was trying to connect virtually every negative, you know, thing that's happened in society to the beef trade and the the raising and consuming of beef. And it was pretty laughable, actually. The book is pretty absurd. But what I've realized is that that kind of advocacy has had, it's kind of been effective in that it's gotten into mainstream conversations. And so you have people in the nutrition community, for example, saying things like, well, we all know beef isn't bad for the climate, and we also shouldn't eat it that much for our health. You know, so there's kind of like this assumption that this is correct. Um, but truthfully, the people who are saying this, are when you look at the science that they're basing it on, it's not solid. So in Defending Beef, I go through a lot of detail discussing especially the methane argument and explaining why you know, there's kind of, this has really been exaggerated and misunderstood when it comes to cattle. So to try to summarize it quickly, um, without getting into all the detail of it, um, 
the first point is that all of the methane that comes from cattle is biogenic. It's part of the natural cycle. They're eating, um, you know, basically plants, vegetation, and that gets its carbon and its energy from the natural photosynthesis, you know, synthesis process. And actually, the vast majority of cattle in the world are actually grazing on grass. You know, we think about um, feedlots all the time. But when you look at the world's population of cattle and where they are on a daily basis, the vast majority of them are just on grass. And they're um, just grazing in um, areas, for the most part, where you can't even raise crops. Okay, so they're consuming vegetation. And in the digestive process, because they're eating that very low quality, you know, cellulosic material that we were talking about before that humans can't eat, they need um, uh, microorganisms to help them break it down. And in their gut, that happens, and that results in the release of methane. All of that carbon, though, is basically old carbon. It was carbon that was already part of the natural carbon cycle of, you know, sort of photosynthesis, and plant growth, and then um, death and decay, and then regrowth, you know, entering the soils, and then coming out, and then the, um, the plant growing and taking the carbon from the atmosphere. So that, that cycle is what the cattle is, are part of, and the methane that they're releasing, the carbon comes from that cycle. So that's an important point, and there's actually um, really good evidence showing that biogenic methane actually breaks down much more quickly than methane that comes from the fossil fuel industry. But more importantly, the fossil fuel industry, all of that methane is basically new carbon. It's coming from um, natural gas especially, but also from coal and oil. And it's carbon that was stored deep in the ground and was not affecting climate change until it's being extracted and then burned. And there's a lot of new research now, just in the last few years, showing that there are methane leaks and also deliberate methane releases all around the world in the fossil fuel industry that had never been measured or regulated. And so the bottom line is that the fossil, I mean, again, I go through a lot of arguments, and a lot of detail about this whole issue in my book, but the sort of bottom line is that the vast majority of the methane that's being released in the world by humans is coming from the fossil fuel industry. And it can actually be fixed. The yeah. majority of it is stuff that we can stop, you know, if we focus on it. And the and easiest and the easiest way to do that, in my estimation, is to stop buying made in China. But that's another yeah. story that I could probably get in trouble with. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely a part of this whole idea of transporting things all over the place, right? And also, we know that the environmental regulations in China are, you know, almost non-existent. There you go. And so. Yeah, it's, but to focus on cattle, what you, when you start sort of digging in the numbers and the advocacy, you start realizing that the focus on cattle comes, so going back to that anti-beef, you know, uh, sort of group really comes from the vegan component of the, the whole, you know, push against meat. They've connected, you know, global warming with methane from cattle, even though that's really a very small part of the world's methane. And in fact, uh, I go through it again in a lot of detail in the book, but there's really no parallel at all between cattle populations and methane uh, in the atmosphere. But and that's been shown to, from a lot of research. Yeah, it seems to be a very easy place for people to manipulate because it's very detailed numbers that nobody really has a handle on. 
So it would be relatively easy for somebody to grab a few of those numbers and make them say what they want them to say. Yeah, and also it's actually, there's a very complex science around identifying what methane comes from what sources. And some of the world's leading experts on this are debating it. And people like Dr. Robert Howarth at Cornell University, who heads the methane project, is, you know, arguing to the, on the world stage at the UN that stuff that was previously attributed to cattle, in fact, is not even from cattle, that it's actually from frap, fracking and other um, fossil fuel extraction processes. So this is not at all a simple um, issue. And it's really, in my view, it's really all kind of a red herring. If you have well-raised cattle, there's really good research on this too, new research just in the last few years coming out showing that their impact on the soil, they can sequester so much carbon that actually more than fully offsets all of the carbon that they would release in the form of methane um, from their digestive processes. And, and so if you look at, you know, sort of the details of this, it's clear that you don't need to stop eating beef because of the methane issue. And you know, we, I look back to the concentrated animal feeding operations and the way we feed animals in those operations is not dissimilar to how we feed ourselves in the city, which is, you know, food and packages and whatnot. But with respect to doing animal husbandry the right way, uh, there are those who are pointing to a different way of, of raising animals that would be most beneficial to the environment. And I'd like you to start, if you would be so kind, uh, with Alan Savory. Yes. Well, Alan Savory is someone who I've met several times, and I've actually shared the stage with him a few times in speaking engagements. And I have huge respect for him as a person and for his work. And, you know, basically, he was, he's a, his background is as a wildlife ecologist from Zimbabwe, and he grew up there and, um, you know, sort of got the training to be a wildlife ecologist in college and then practiced it um, for the government, actually. And he began, he was told and taught repeatedly that sort of animals trampling the ground is an environmental problem. And he began um, to, you know, he believed this because this is what you were taught in college and this is what he was, um, you know, purportedly being shown when he visited areas around Zimbabwe um, and around other parts of Africa. And originally in his career, he was part of efforts to actually reduce the numbers of large uh, grazing animals in, in Africa. And at a certain point, he broke away from that whole way of thinking and started to realize that actually when they were removing the large grazing animals, whether they were wild or domesticated, that they they would then see environmental degradation after they did that. And interestingly, over the last few decades, this was decades ago that he was beginning to notice this and beginning to break away from conventional thinking. But there's now been a lot of research around the world for the last um, couple decades really uh, showing that what he was saying is absolutely correct because there have been areas around the world where grazing animals have been removed for supposedly environmental restoration. And what was found was that the ecosystems began to decline. And why is that? The reason is because this sort of animal impact, this kind of trampling and eating and pooping and peeing and all the stuff that animals do when they're on ground, whether it's an elephant or a cow, 
that stuff actually has a tremendous environmental importance for the whole ecosystem. And it really starts with the soil and the soil biology. And the microorganisms in the soil need that animal impact. And when they don't get it, the microorganisms begin to disappear and to die. And where you have the animal impact, you have a lot more microbial life in the soils and you have a more diverse population of microbes in the soil. And that leads to sort of an upward cascade of ecological health starting from the ground up. So Alan Savory took this lesson that he was seeing firsthand and began working, uh, kind of um, teaching people what he thought was actually going to make healthy ecosystems. And it was much more about having the animals more closely congregated and having them moving, but also having lots of animals um, but having the land rest for longer periods of time. So he had a, he had a very different view than the conventional view. And now he's had a giant, you know, tremendous impact all over the world in sort of making this case that we need the grazing animals for healthy ecosystems. And how did that relate to a new way of raising animals here? Well, um, the Savory Institute was founded in Colorado with um, Alan Savory being one of the founders. And they are basically um, working around the world, helping people learn how to think more holistically about their land and looking at it as an ecosystem and figuring out how to understand that landscape's natural functions and work with the natural landscape and using the animals almost as tools for restoring ecological health. And if you look at their website, they have and I know a lot of the people who work there, and I've done a lot of work with them over the years. They're very credible. And they've, they have they have done miraculous restoration of landscapes all over the world. A lot of them are in Africa, and lots of them are in, the, um, in North America and other parts of the world. And they actually have returned wildlife and water and vegetation to places that were almost basically desert um, through their practices. And for for ranchers like the Neiman Ranch and Joel Salatin. Yeah, well, we're, we, what we are doing in on our ranch here in Northern California is we are we're sort of in a natural grassland area right on the Pacific Coast, and our whole model is to try to again sort of mimic the wild animals that were once here with the way that we manage the cattle. So the idea, and we have huge areas of you know. Um, where we, we leave the trees and we have large corridors for wildlife on our ranch. And um, we don't apply any chemicals or we don't irrigate, we don't plow, we don't anything. It's basically just moving these grazing animals in sort of concentrated ways and then giving the, uh, the land lots of time to recover from the animal impact. So you need the animal impact and you need the rest. And that's exactly what we do on our ranch here as well. And there you go. So that's a different way of doing things. And so when people argue about uh, the beef industry, they're not talking about you. They're talking about something else. And so somehow one has to stand up and, and uh, have a word with them, I guess. And that's what we're doing today is we're having a word. Uh, should beef be banned? I don't think so. Nic Nicolette Hahn Neiman doesn't think so. What do you think? When we get back, is beef bad for the body? Do stay tuned. So much to say, so little time to say it on the food chain with Michael Olson. Well, someplace along the way, we all got fat. Uh, not all of us, of course, but many of us did. 
And uh, when people cast around for a reason we all got fat, well, well they look at beef. They're, it's their fault. We, we eat the saturated fat, we eat the, the protein, and we all got fat and our hearts got bad and, and uh, we're in a big trouble because of fat. How did this all come to be? Because I'm not sure it's real. Nicolette. Yeah. I mean, this is, to me, this is almost more infuriating than the ecological argument because it's so clearly wrong. And, um, and when I was researching the original Defending Beef book, I was really surprised when I went back and looked at the original demographic data about how, you know, what American, um, Americans were eating, basically, and what uh, our farms were producing. I was very surprised to learn that actually we hadn't dramatically increased our red meat consumption, because that's kind of what I'd always heard. And we hadn't increased our butter, and we hadn't increased our whole milk, and we hadn't increased our animal fat overall. In fact, it had gone down. And if you look at like 100 years ago and you compare consumption today of whole eggs or red meat or uh, butter or whole milk, it's actually lower today. And it's actually considerably lower than it was a few decades ago in, in particular. So there was kind of an upsurge of beef consumption in the middle of the 20th century, but then it went down pretty dramatically in the 70s and 80s. And interestingly, that's precisely the time period where we started to see a dramatic rise in obesity, diabetes, and all the diet-related diseases, heart disease, stroke, etc. And so one of the things I do in the book is I go through and really look at the science. And in fact, I was just actually just reading a, a study last night um, that was about saturated fat in particular. And it was saying that a, a more careful analysis of the saturated fat research shows that when you um, when you look at the food, when you look at the element um, saturated fat, you have to look at the bigger picture. You know what it's contained in, and what it's being eaten with. And when you do that, um, the food as a whole is much more important than the individual element. And it was saying this this study was saying there's no correlation at all between uh, saturated fat that's consumed in unprocessed meat or dairy and heart disease or any other um, negative health outcome. So it was, it's, it's a real, there's a real rethinking that's been going on and a reevaluation about diet and health and especially saturated fat. But you wouldn't know it if you looked at sort of the dietary guidelines, you know, in the federal government or, you know, what you might get in a typical doctor's office because it takes decades to undo something that's been drummed into the head of, you know, public health and medical officials for the last couple of decades. Who was doing the drumming into our head about saturated <laughs> fats? Well, you know, there are lots of places you could pin blame, but I think, unfortunately, the dietary guidelines that come from the federal mm -hmm. government have been very harmful because, it, the, they accepted this notion, and it's really interesting, in, in Defending Beef, I go through some of the history, and my father was a history professor, so this was very gratifying to me to, to realize how helpful it was to look at the history. There was actually, in sort of the mid-20th century, in the 50s and 60s, there began to be this sort of rise in heart disease and stroke, and there began to be a pretty serious effort in the medical and public health community to try to figure out what was causing it. 
And there were some people early on that were saying, well, this rise in sugar and processed foods and things that were, you know, a lot of sugar is being added is is the most important change that has been happening dietarily. And then you had other people like Ansel Keys that were saying, no, it's actually about the saturated fat. And that case was being made and these ideas were being debated. And what I found was that the people that were arguing that sugar was the main problem were deliberately attacked and marginalized by the sugar industry to the point where it was so successful that their voices were completely drowned out. And not for scientific reasons, you know, but just for kind of more successful advocacy reasons, um, the saturated fat argument won the day. And there seemed to be some science that initially supported it. And so that idea just sort of took hold. But then in the last, I'd say, about 15 years, 20 years, there's been a reevaluation of a lot of that science because it hasn't um, panned out in terms of what's happening in the population. You know, we've actually, um, like, for example, cut our butter consumption. We've, you know, cut the animal fat consumption pretty dramatically in in this country. And yet we've been seeing this continued rise in the diet-related diseases. So it's kind of brought about this reevaluation of the science. And it's now, I think, quite clear that the science does not hold up at all. You know, uh, a couple nights ago, my wife and I were watching a video of a street scene from Lagos, Nigeria, uh, the most yeah. world's most densely populated city. And we were watching uh, as a car just drove through the city and seeing all these people. And, and my wife remarked, none of them are fat. What's yeah. wrong? Why aren't they fat? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because you and I are both old enough that we remember that that was how it was when we were kids, too. That's I mean, right. It's, That's it's, right. In fact, I, I grew up in a neighborhood of kids. Um, it was one of those, um, you know, sort of a suburban area with tons of kids. I mean, literally dozens of kids in my neighborhood. And I only knew one child that was overweight. I mean, it just wasn't a common phenomenon. And then now it's a large percentage of the children in this country. And so obviously there have been some really dramatic changes that have happened. And I would say things like screen time and, you know, there are other things that are factors in it, but the dietary changes are probably the most important. And I saw a study um, just a couple of weeks ago in the Journal of American Medical Association saying that for in, in the United States between ages two and 19, Almost three quarters of the calories now are coming from ultra or highly processed foods, I believe is the term they use. So for kids now, they're basically getting their their nutrition from highly processed foods. And that, to me, is the cornerstone of the whole problem. Mm -hmm. And so when you focus on a food like beef, which is a real food, (laughs) you know, and you can eat it completely pure. You don't even have to have anything in it other than maybe a little salt and pepper, right? You just buy a piece of meat or some ground meat at the store and just cook it up at home, right? Very simple. The simple food to eat and keep basically whole and real. And in, but people are getting so many of their calories now from highly processed foods that don't have very much nutrition at all and have lots of all kinds of chemical additives and processes that were, you know, done to them to the point where they're biologically dead and don't really contain any real nutrition. And to me, that's very obviously the real problem with our diet. So, you know, in fact, what we should be talking about is not banning beef, but banning sugar and and ultra-processed foods. But we're not going to be talking about that, Nicolette, because there is so much money 
in making that exactly. stuff. Exactly. Exactly. A friend of mine says the profit is in the processing in the food industry. And that is so true. You look at the ingredients that go into a lot of these, like these um, fake burgers that are coming out, and the ingredients themselves are kind of inexpensive items other than these, like you said, these high-tech, highly engineered ingredients. Those are probably pretty expensive to make. But basically, these are cheap foods, and there are things that don't actually contain a lot of nutrition. So things are being added, you know, all kinds of um, supplements are being added to the food to make it nutritional seeming. Um, and, but this is really, um, it's, 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 it's the profit in the food industry coming from the fact that they're doing all of these steps to it, that processing part. And you take these cheap inputs and you make an expensive, if you look at, um, a lot of the meat uh, substitutes, especially now the these higher tech ones, if you look at them in the grocery store case, they're as expensive or more expensive than meat, and that's where you know all the process the processing is what's um, creating the profit for the food industry. And there's a lot of processing. You you know what is amazing to me is I hear these industrialists uh, make comments that uh, we have to avoid eating meat because it's destroying the climate and ruining the land and so on and so on and so on. And you look at where they're putting their money. They're putting the money into patenting these fake meats. Exactly. So that they own the solution to climate change. And if you want to eat that solution, you have to buy their fake meat. Exactly. It's crazy. (laughs) So how it's, it's really it's hard not to be cynical, Michael, because <laughs> because you're absolutely right. Where you when you look at the the investments that people like Bill Gates are making into fake meat and others, and then they're going around talking about how we shouldn't be eating meat. It's it's really hard not to get cynical about it. And then I love the woman in Norway who funded the big Eat Lancet um, program um, that said we should basically all become vegans, and she's a vegan, and she goes around. Uh, you know, in her private jet and post pictures of herself on Instagram in all these different vacation spots. And she's telling, you know, us ordinary folks that we should not be eating meat because of global warming gases. Really? And then gets (laughs) back in her jet and burns up. Now, how does one compete with all that money? Uh, We have have Nicolet Hahn Neiman here who's uh, on a (laughs) ranch in Northern California tending cows. Yeah. And and seeing all of the madness in the marketplace that's yeah. pointing in the wrong direction. And yeah. it, and it just, always seems to point in the wrong direction. It has it seems for forever. Um and yet we look at places like Lagos, Nigeria, uh that doesn't have this, you know, this industrial food world and the people have to eat probably real whole things. Uh, and they look great. Yeah. So what I, you are know, we going to do? Think, I, you know, for me, it's heartening. It's discouraging when I think about all these things we've just been talking about with the money going into it. And, and you know, I'm just north of the Silicon Valley area here, so I'm very aware of the sort of vegan um, animal rights tendencies from a lot of people that have money in Silicon Valley and are investing into these fake meats. And it's hard sometimes not to get discouraged, but what, what gives me a lot of hope is how many times I've had conversations with young people, sometimes even just in their teens and in their 20s, 
who are really interested in truly regenerative agriculture and understand the importance of that, and who are really interested in real food and understanding the connection between soil health and nutrient-dense foods, and kind of a level of sophistication in this new generation that wasn't there, you know, even 20 years ago. And I have, I have realized that there's this kind of millennial population that's in their 30s and 40s now that we're pushing for veganism. And this newer, younger generation coming up is largely rejecting that whole idea. And, I, and, I, and I'm excited about that. And I'm just excited about the amount of energy that I see going into understanding food systems more like ecosystems. And there's just a lot of interest in that whole idea of making farming more like nature. And I think that's where the solution really is. Well, we have about three minutes left. You conclude your book with a section called Why Eat Meat? Why yeah. eat meat, Nicolette? Well, I think there are two main points. On the one side, we need animals as part of the food system if we want it to be really ecologically vibrant. As we've been talking about, the grazing animals in particular really add something ecologically beneficial to the food system. So it's not about mitigating their harms. It's about using them in ways that grazing animals would have um, existed in natural systems. And then on the other side, meat is a real food, a whole food that is incredibly nourishing and that our, our physiology is actually built to consume. And so it provides nutrition that we need and that is very, very hard, I would even argue impossible to replace with sort of modern inventions. And so meat is invaluable, both ecologically and nutritionally. And that's why I think we should not be arguing against it. We should be trying to figure out how to do it better. And so I go back to that. It's not the cow, it's the how. And as a 30-year vegetarian, you hit the magic 50 and you decided to eat meat. What difference yep. did it make in your life? Well, the most interesting thing to me is that I realized I would, was hungry all the time as a vegetarian for, you know, like I would say almost 30 years, I was sort of hungry. And when I began eating meat, and it literally was immediately the case, I felt satiated to a degree that I had not felt in so many years. And I really believe that's about the fact that that nourishment was so complete and so fulfilling to my body. And interestingly, I also have always kind of struggled with sweet tooth and eating meat sort of immediately helped me to um, not crave sweets. And so I've just gotten into, I believe, a much healthier place. And it's helped me with everything I'm trying to do with my health in terms of um, being, you know, healthy, being energetic, being um, thin, you know, not, not being overweight, all that stuff. And so I'm I am 100% committed to this omnivorous diet that I'm now following. I feel great. Can your side of the animal agriculture equation find common ground with the industrial side, or is it uh, are we doomed to be the north and the south on this? Well, I find it heartening that major entities like General Mills and places like that are talking about these ideas. You know, some people call it greenwashing, and there is a lot of that. And I, I, I'm glad that we're, you know, not just taking them at their word, but the fact that they care about soil biology, that they're talking it's, it's about it, big, that they're 
big start. Looking at it. you know, Yeah, exactly. It can make a big difference. Well, Nic- Nicolette Hahn Neiman, the book Defending Beef, The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Should we ban beef, Nicolette? No. Thank you very much for joining me on the food chain. <laughs> Remember, folks, Michael Olson, third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. Thank you, Nicolette. Thank you. You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at metrofarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. <laughs>